0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-right to center-left. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Bill Galston of Brookings and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week, We are delighted to welcome back as our guest this week, Adam White, who is a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he specializes in constitutional studies and also teaches administrative law, which is highly relevant to what we're going to get to in our second segment, namely the cascade of cases coming out of the Supreme Court this week. Um, So, welcome, one and all. We're going to begin with the book that is broiling Washington, John Bolton's book, The Room Where It Happened. Um, Subtitle could have been, this is a direct quote from the book, Obstruction of Justice as a Way of Life. Um, Let's begin with um, the legal posture of this book. Uh, and Adam, I'd ask you to give us a quick analysis of that. The, uh, government is suing to prevent the publication of the book. Where do we stand on that?
1: Oh, that's a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> um, I, uh, I think the best the best analysis of this so far has been by by Jack Goldsmith and, and Marty Letterman at the Lawfare blog, and so I'd encourage our, your listeners to to tune in. Basically, the administration has asserted breach of contract claims against John Bolton, saying that the agreements he signed the standard the standard agreements that he signed on his way into this sensitive position preclude his compliance or his his release of classified information without first fully complying. With the the prepublication review process, I think Jack and Marty are right in their basic conclusions that John Bolton seems to have have, have carried out all of his obligations under those agreements. Uh, of course, we we sh- we we should I think recognize the sensitivities of those positions and, and the need for for serious confidentiality, at the same time, uh, the administration and the president shouldn't be allowed to use those procedures uh, in ways that are just tactically intended to prevent transparency of things that don't need to be secret. And so I, I defer to Jack and Marty on this one. I think that John Bolton ought to be allowed to to publish some form of this book. And I'm glad he, I'm glad he has.
0: Damon, what do you make of people who say um, that John Bolton should have testified before the Congress during the he was he was asked to um, testify uh, before the House during its impeachment consideration and then uh, he volunteered to testify during the Senate trial but he said he would he wanted to be subpoenaed and uh, insufficient number of Republicans having been willing to do that he was not subpoenaed and so he didn't testify what do you make of the argument that that makes him um a lying trader who was only interested in getting uh, his uh, money for his book and not interested in the national uh, w- welfare:
2: Well, I, I actually will uh, ask uh, all of you, some of whom I believe know John Bolton. Uh, I do not. Um, i I certainly don't think that uh, his decision in this regard. Uh, has anything, you know, speaks about his trustworthiness. Uh, There's no reason to assume that things in the book aren't true because he didn't testify. But I do, I am curious, those who know him better than I do, uh, what was his motive exactly? Was it simply that uh, it would undercut sales for his book if he gave up all the goodies uh, in in testimony seen by the entire country? Or was there perhaps some other consideration i'm not aware of i mean and, and does anyone know or what linda or adam
0: do, it? do you uh do you know john bolton either of you
2: well i do
3: but i certainly don't know what other motivation uh, there was i really you know frankly agree that it was wrong for him not to testify i think we talked about this on the podcast um you know i uh I think he would like to have been in the position of saying, I had to testify. I testified because I was subpoenaed. And when uh, the Democrats denied him that opportunity, he decided just to stay quiet until his book was published.
0: I don't, Adam, I don't get that. Um, um, If you're eager, as for whether people know him, I know him a little bit. Um, not not well at all uh, uh, but 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 he's in a circle sort of you know um, just adjacent to the circle I'm in and I know a lot of people that know him well and I do believe that he is a person who tells the truth and is a straight shooter whatever one might think of his views that he's not not a fabulous not a liar um, <clears throat> but I, I do not understand I do not claim to have any insight into why um, he would, Hold on to this information. I guess, you know, he says in the book, apparently, that he felt it wouldn't have made any difference uh, to the outcome of the impeachment trial, and therefore it would have been just, you know, a a futile gesture. But uh, if anybody has any more insight, what do you think, Adam?
1: Well, I I don't know, John. Uh, If you were to take everything he says at face value, and I don't see a reason not to. If I remember correctly, he said during the impeachment trial that that uh, the question about whether he could be compelled to testify over the president's objections was a matter of executive privilege that would need to be sorted out by court. Um, and there was never, if I remember correctly, there were never any subpoenas that gave rise to that challenge. Um, according to my understanding of of what followed with the book, the pre-publication review that I was just talking about wasn't completed until April. And so now Bolton is as he understands it, and I think he's right, free to publish this book, having gone through the right procedures, it may just have been a question of Bolton saying that the the procedures were important and he would comply with them along the way. But So that's know.
0: interesting. No, that's interesting. I mean, that certainly puts a very positive spin on it, that he was really just trying to cross the T's and dot the I's and do everything in the proper legal way. Um Bill Galston, uh, there are so many (laughs) revelations in this book. None of them particularly surprising for those of us who've been paying close attention to the Trump phenomenon all these years, but, um, but some of them are, are nevertheless worthy of, uh, comment. Um, let's, I guess, talk about, um, when Bolton relays, um, There was a a meeting about a year ago um, in June of 2019, in which President Xi spoke with President Trump and explained why he was building concentration camps for the more than one million Uyghurs in his country. And according to the book, Trump told him this was exactly the right thing to do.
4: Words fail me. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> what is, you, know, what, is,
4: you know, what what is one spo- supposed to say? You know, this is that, you know, this is the president of the United States, you know, speaking on behalf of what used to be the leader of what used to be the free world. Uh, and, uh, you know, and basically... Uh, you know, giving giving the green light, not that Mr. Xi needed a green light from Donald Trump or anyone else, you know, to engage in mass repression of, of, an, you know, of a very large group within his own society. Uh, the uh, you know, two things jump out at me based on what little I've read about this book. One I think I already knew. Namely, you know, the president's complete indifference to democratic values, norms, and, and procedures. The thing that really shocked me was Bolton's contention that not a single foreign policy decision was made where the question of its impact on the president's reelection prospects uh, wasn't front and center. That is, I think, the most shocking indictment of a president I've ever heard. Seriously. Yeah. No.
0: I. I mean, this is this is an excellent point, Bill, because it isn't just that he is indifferent to the norms and values of a democratic society; it's that he is indifferent to the values that he pro- promoted himself in his own race. His claim, for example, to be tough on China is revealed to be an enormous joke. Um, he was willing, uh, we knew this anyway, but I mean, it, it's spelled out in, in graphic detail in this book. He was willing to trade away all the tariffs um, or, or, or mostly trade them away if, if Xi would simply agree to buy more farm products from, from the US so that it could help Trump with his, with his reelect. Um, in fact, he pretty much pleaded with Xi to help him in this way. Um, he uh, he also was willing to give you know again uh, this so called Mister Tough on China. Um, remember back when ZTE, the Chinese telecom giant, was in trouble because with us it was in trouble with the U.S. government because it had evaded sanctions on Iran and North Korea, and it was facing other. Penalties, um, and uh, but after a conversation with President Xi, Trump said he was going to let ZTE off.
4: And just to, you know, just to pile horror upon horror, uh, what what Trump did was to give you know President Xi the upper hand. Over the United States. Yes. Right? And basically handed him the keys to the kingdom. Uh, And, uh, I mean, if that, if he isn't the world's worst negotiator, (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Art of the Deal, you know, who's always talking about leverage. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He, you know, he revealed, he revealed his motives. He turned over his whole card. Yeah. You know, I mean, I yeah, mean, exactly. Exactly. I mean, she must have been just incredulous that the President yeah. of the United States was saying this to him.
0: Damon, one of the things uh that it does reveal though, if Trump has any talent, it is the talent for leading the press around by the nose. That he does seem to know how to do. And one little detail that I that that stood out to me about this this technique of his was um when uh, when there was a story that had begun to circulate about Ivanka Trump using her private email for government work, which of course was exactly the thing that he had pilloried Hillary Clinton for, um, he decided he started tweeting out in all capital letters about Khashoggi, who had recently been killed and dismembered by the uh, Saudi crown prince. And he knew he said "This will divert from Ivanka
2: yeah, well that's that is how he operates, and it all flows from I think the same set of core uh motives of the man that everything is always about him, and of course that includes his immediate family, so Ivanka is within that narrow circle. And everything else, whether it's economic policy, trade policy, foreign policy, all of it gets warped and distorted in order to advance that one core consideration, which is, is this going to help me personally? And my immediate family, personally, and that's really all that matters. So he'll he'll kind of throw bones at the press in order to get them off the trail of one story. He'll concede things to G if he thinks that'll be helpful. He'll draw down ten thousand or so troops from NATO because, and of course, this has also been announced this week. Our plans to do that—that, that, of course, is a bone to Putin. Everybody knows it. There's no, and I'm someone who's skeptical of a lot of foreign policy things. But I like, know. But like, there has to be some kind of rationale behind all of this. Like, <laughs> hey, what we're getting, we're supposed to be getting stronger by d- intentionally making ourselves weaker on every front, except for Iran for some reason. Uh, Iran is the one place where we're, we're still super tough, but everywhere else in Europe with Putin, in in Asia with China. We just pull back without anyone asking us to. And we're supposed to sit here and try to figure it out when it's clear that this is all about some calculation in his own head about how it can benefit him personally. That's always what it is.
0: Linda, I don't don't imagine that too many voters think about things in these terms. Maybe I'm wrong, but For me, it is so deeply humiliating that we have a president of the United States who, in a meeting with the British, reveals that he did not know that the UK was a nuclear power.
3: Yes. (laughs) Um, Well, you're surprised. You're surprised. (laughs) who
0: Who says that he thinks Finland is part of Russia? Yeah.
4: Who said to who said the Russians do? Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> and,
0: and, and who said to Modi, the the uh, Prime Minister of India, that it was? Gosh, it's a good thing you don't share a border with China, by the way.
3: The <laughs> <movie>. <laughs> okay. Oh my, oh my goodness. Now, doesn't, I mean,
0: now doesn't that make you just cringe? Doesn't it make you feel so ashamed? on behalf of our country.
3: He doesn't even have to open his mouth to make me ashamed that he represents us. I mean, but you know what, what you're talking about, and, and it's, it's something that is deeply disturbing and it's, it's something I've said before, but I'll say it again. And that is that Trump is more symptom uh, than he is, uh, you know, the cause of decline in the United States and then the decline in, uh, the electorate sort of focusing on the issues they need need to. The fact that he was able to be elected, we knew all of these things during the campaign. I mean, you remember the debates when Marco Rubio very nicely had to explain what the nuclear triad was uh, to mm-hmm. Donald Trump, who had not the foggiest clue when he was asked a question about it. Um, and, he said nuclear you know,
0: was very important to him. Yes, nuclear
3: was important to him. Right. <laughs> uh, oh, anyway, uh, but, yeah. you know, but he, you know, but, yeah. but I but I do think that you know I do think that 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 um, it, it does show that you do have to have a basic level of competence to be president of the United States, and I mean it's one of the things you know that. Sarah Palin fell uh, over. Was her clearly manifest incompetence to have been able to assume the role uh, of president had John McCain been elected? I think that hurt McCain uh, terribly. Um, But for whatever reason, by the time 2016 rolled around, you had a large part of the electorate who didn't seem to care and I think it also reflects that you couldn't ask the average American what the nuclear triad was. You, didn't, you couldn't ask them whether China and India shared a common border because my guess is a very high percentage of the population would not know that. And that to me in some, is more troubling uh, about the future of democracy than Trump himself as the paragon of that ignorance is.
0: Well, speaking of what we knew and didn't know in 2016 during the, the campaign, this is the one thing about Bolton that um, gives me pause, which is, you know, I remember very well where I was. I was in a hotel in California when he was suddenly on TV sort of late at night, um, exultant because he had just come back from a meeting at the White House where he he'd been told he was going to be the next national security advisor. I'm sure McMaster had not yet been told that he'd been fired. But, uh, but in any event, I remember vividly um, the expression on John Bolton's face that night. He was He was just as giddy as a schoolboy. And I thought, you know what Kind of a person this is. You know what a mess uh, this administration is, and yet you're so excited to be joining it, and you're going to be one of those who makes excuses and who and who covers up all the incompetence and all the rest of it. So, you know it's 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 a tough it's a tough thing to um, to say whether John Bolton did the right thing by joining the administration or not. Um, some people think that those in in important national security posts you know, should swallow their pride and go ahead and do it. But sometimes it wasn't a matter of swallowing your pride. It was a matter of pridefulness and even taking on the role.
2: I, I and, remember, uh, if I could jump in for a sec, I remember yeah. uh, right after uh, Trump won uh Elliot Cohen writing something, I guess probably for The Atlantic, about how he was approached by the, the incoming administration about whether he would be interested in a job, and they chatted about it a little bit, and then it became clear that that people in the White House or the, the incoming White House looked up some things that Cohen had written and saw how anti-Trump he had been. And they started berating him, basically asking him to go public and and renounce everything he had said and and prove his loyalty. And Cohen basically said, screw you. I'm not going to do that. And he decided not. To, to pursue it, and you know, I, I I totally get both sides of that calculation. People who figure uh, if I go in there, I can f- help, I can make it better, and there are plenty of stories of people who, in in all good conscience, tried to do that. But I think in the end, uh, the, the, the lesson for everyone is that it never works. <laughs> The, the Trump is a black hole who who sort of absorbs all goodness, and it's not that everyone ends up corrupt, but they end up either corrupt or sort of impotent and then getting spewed out uh, in the end. Well, uh, I'm not sure whether this is a counterexample or not,
4: but uh, you know, my colleague and friend Fiona Hill, uh, went into the administration with her eyes wide open. Uh, and she kept them firmly open for the two years that she was she was in the administration. Uh, and there was some controversy within Brookings about the propriety of her having made that decision. Uh, but knowing her, I never doubted for a moment uh, that she would call them as she saw them, uh, and that she would never be intimidated into offering, a judgment or a recommendation that uh, that she didn't believe in totally. Uh, we need people like that to take a chance, to take a moral risk, uh, to try to save the country from something even worse. So I don't think we can make an across-the-board judgment about any of this. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't
2: want to do. That.
0: Before you go, uh, Damon, let me just say on the subject of Fiona Hill um, that it pleased me no end that she became a heroine uh, because, um, you know, you rarely find situations where, in especially in modern America... Uh, where we're so celebrity obsessed and we seem often to elevate the very worst people instead of the best people. And she was an example of somebody who became uh, a hit for for actually showing her intelligence, her competence, and her conscience. So I was delighted with that. Okay, David, you were-
2: Well, all I wanted to say is that I I don't disagree with anything Bill said or what you just said, Mona think that's all quite right. I think it is, though, a kind of continuing rolling lesson in uh, what the end result ends up being. I, I don't know if it's true that Fiona Hill uh, did much good. Maybe she did, but we all know how her tenure in the administration ended. She survived with her reputation very much intact, but um, it's not like she steered the uh, the Trump administration into, uh, into a decent harbor or anything like that.
0: Right. And, the, and, and it's also the case that many of the people who have um, entered this administration, have wound up embarrassing themselves, lying for the president. You know, I, I had great regard for lots of people until they joined the Trump administration. Mike Pompeo is a great example. Um, who um, because of the nature of this administration, the nature of this president, he's been forced to lie repeatedly um, about what the president does and says. And it's just it's it's humiliating for him. I, at least it should be. Um, and uh, and it is it is demoralizing um, for the rest of us to see people who formerly were impressive individuals who, who with reputations to uphold who um, have have turned into lackeys Uh, So there's been way, way more of that, I think, in this administration than Fiona Hills, alas.
3: And I would just say, Mona, even with Mike Pompeo, what what sometimes this ends up doing is really revealing the true character of a person. And whatever respect either of us might have had for Mike Pompeo before he took this office, I think... He's been revealed by the way he has behaved, and particularly lately since he has become Secretary of State, uh, to not have been worthy of that respect. Um, I mean, I don't think he lies because he's forced to lie. Uh, I think he's very ambitious. And what he has done is to, you know, do what he does in order to further his own ambitions. And those ambitions included, at least for a time, considering running for the Senate and perhaps at some future point running for president of the United States. So I don't give him a pass. I don't think he was did it because he was forced to.
0: No, I don't, I don't think he was, nobody is forced to. That's my point. They, they they, they may, they choose to become lackeys and therefore they forfeit the respect that they current, they previously were owed. Okay. Let us now turn to the Supreme court, which uh, has been busy. Um, And, uh, the, the, the first big case I'd like to talk about is, um, the one regarding the interpretation of the 1964 civil rights act, Adam, um, this was seen as a, so preliminary question. This was seen as an argument among conservative legal scholars of different interpretations about how to, um, read a text, um, is it is it a battle between textualism versus originalism?
4: Well, I
1: I don't know. Those both of those labels get a little bit fuzzy. I I do think it's a it's a dis, a battle or a debate over how to apply textualism and originalism at really their finest level of details, where you get real nuanced disagreements between, say, Gorsuch here and the other conservatives. I think it raises interesting questions. I think it says a lot about the preeminence of textualism. Its success, um, its success after four decades, is now raising challenges of its own. And this is a great case study for that.
0: Um, So when you say it's raising challenges of its own, that give us a flavor of of what's going on in in the conservative legal community in response to this decision.
1: Well sure what I meant by that is is this Conservatives like me love to point out that until Justice Scalia arrived on the scene, you didn't have a whole lot of textualist arguments at all in the Supreme Court. Nobody really focused on the text. And uh, three and a half decades after Scalia's appointment, we have this generational change. Whereas, as Elena Kagan has said, we're all textualists now. That's a great vic- victory for conservatism. Seeing textualism and originalism really win credibility as the as perhaps the preeminent approach to judicial interpretation. But the other side of that coin is that now you have progressive groups, liberal groups framing their own constitutional arguments in very thoughtful and smart and challenging textualist terms. And so textualism now has to grapple with some of these arguments at the finest level of detail. This case, Bostock, I think, was a great example of that, where he had real disagreement among conservatives, among the court as a whole, but especially among conservatives, over those words from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, discriminate against any individual because of an individual's uh, sex, with some, some ellipses in there. Um, how to how to understand that provision in its particulars, right? Individual because of sex, discriminate, and then how to take it as a whole. As the dissenters pointed out in this case, nobody nobody at the time of the 1964 Act thought that this statute was um, opening the door to or. or opening the door to claims over discrimination regarding sexual orientation especially not sexually sexual identity or gender identity but gorsuch for the majority says we apply the text as its terms should have been reasonably understood at the time and on their face they point in this direction even if nobody at the time realized it um alito and the others have a have a different version of textualism I thought it's a fascinating decision, and I also think my initial reaction to it, and now Cass Sunstein has written a thoughtful column on it, is that this opinion is going to be very significant. This opinion might be the first step towards the end of race-based affirmative action because of the same sort of literalist uh, reading of the provision applied to race-based um, discrimination in the form of affirmative action could be a death blow to. Wait, the can, you can you explain
0: that? Can you explain that? Well, yeah. sure, it, it, yeah. and
1: I didn't. I didn't mean to jump ahead. Uh, no, no, it's even, okay. I I do, I'm, going, I'm curious
0: but. about how that would work.
1: Well, we have we have a lot of debate. We've had debate for decades now over how to reconcile um, race-based affirmative action, which draws distinctions on race, and and many argue that these are laudable and important distinctions based on race, um, either to to remedy old um, harms of discrimination or for the sake of diversity in the classroom and so on. And so justifications for affirmative action have always been framed in terms of certain types of, of discrimination or distinct distinction is justified in light of the broader purposes of the Civil Rights Act to remedy old harms and put people on an even footing. Whether that's what they intended at the time or not, I think my initial reading of the opinion is if you take Justice Gorsuch's approach in interpreting these terms and, and sex and you apply them, the same terms and, and race... It's going to raise real questions over whether any form of discrimination based on racial classifications can withstand scrutiny under the Civil Rights Act.
3: Could I just interject here? Uh, this has been, you know, as you know, my issue for a very long time. And uh, in fact, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act, in 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 uh, arguing against discrimination, has language that says that it uh, that the act will not. Uh, require preferences on the basis of um, sex, race, etc. And so that—that that is the basis on which um, many of us have opposed affirmative action, that uh, uh, non-discrimination requires that you not discriminate against people, but it also doesn't require you to give preference to piece, uh, people based on certain kinds of, of characteristics, such as sex or race. And so that uh, language in the act, which says it's not going to require that kind of preferences, I think the the heart of of how you would strike down affirmative action using this kind of an interpretation, and and it is based on the text. Um, you know, surely, uh, if, if you're an originalist, I mean, there's no question that no one who who voted on the Civil Rights Act in 1964 ever envisioned, first of all, there even being such a thing as a transgender uh, movement. Uh, uh, the idea of changing one's sex was uh, very new and very rare um, at that point, um, and uh, even gay rights were not uh widely advocated. So that was clearly not uh, why that uh, pr- provision was put in to uh, prevent people from discriminating on the basis of sex. And a lot of people don't realize that that provision was actually put in the bill as a poison bill uh, pill by one of the segregationist opponents of civil rights legislation, because at the time, you used to be able to uh, discriminate in hiring on the basis of sex. There were ads for women's jobs, ads for men's jobs in newspapers, and newspapers, and nobody thought very much about it at the time. And I think what uh, when he uh, offered the provision to uh, block discrimination of, on the basis of sex, he thought that would kill the bill. Well, ultimately it didn't, but um, I think a lot of people are not aware of that history.
0: Uh, Damon, this um, this decision was was authored by Justice Gorsuch. Um, what do you imagine, the, if any, the political repercussions will be? After all, the, the appointment of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh was one of uh, Trump's calling cards for re-election. Didn't go the way a lot of social conservatives wanted. Does Quite. this uh, yeah. vitiate that? that uh, claim to success?
2: Well, not yet, but uh, I'm sure we will be talking in a little bit about uh, another uh, decision that came down just uh, today, Thursday, uh, on uh, having to do with DACA, in which the um, uh, majority opinion was authored by uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, obviously a, a George W. Bush appointee. And there is an abortion case coming down the pike, probably uh, to be released uh, next week. And you put these these together, if the abortion case uh, ends up not going the way social conservatives would like, I do think that you could see a real kind of grassroots uh, expression of outrage on the right about this. Um, you know, I do think the Civil Rights Act case Bostock is is an important one. It's not a constitutional case, uh so it doesn't kind of rise to the highest level, but the Civil Rights Act is a is a very big deal and of course, um uh in in kind of uh when it comes to the conservative movement, it's very important because there's a lot of Uh, debate and argument and uh, anger in some circles about anti-discrimination law and it going too far. So I do think we've started to see the beginnings of what could be a pretty major uh, earthquake on the right about a kind of disgust that, hey, we we've we put these judges in there, these justices on the court. They're supposed to be handing down uh, uh, decisions that further our agenda, and they're not delivering, just they haven't been delivering for all these decades there's a lot of frustration about Roe v. Wade still being there 50 years on almost and so forth. So I would look for more of that, especially uh, in light of uh, the, the uh, DACA ruling today as well.
0: Yeah, we're going to come to DACA in just one sec. I just want to ask um, Bill, uh, another thing that the court did this week was they, they announced that they were denying cert in a bunch of gun cases, Which is interesting, Um, and cases involving qualified immunity. Um, What do you make of that? In terms, I mean, do you would you agree with me when I say when I see the court described as conservative, this conservative court, which you see all the time in the press? I always scratch my head when I see that because, yeah, there have been some conservative victories over the last number of years. Uh, You know, Citizens United and Heller and a few others. But uh, there have been tremendous number of liberal victories, too. I, I don't think it's fair to label the court as conservative. What do you think?
4: I would say that it really, it really depends on the dimension of conservatism that you're focusing on. Uh, for example, if you, if, if you look at decisions related to business and the free market, I think it would be fair to describe this court as a conservative court. Uh, Many of those cases are more technical, less emotionally fraught. They get less attention. Uh, But the court has been pretty consistent marching down the road in a pro-business direction. I'm not passing judgment on the merits of any particular decision, but as a whole, I think that's a fair generalization. Uh, but on the higher-profile social issues, uh, I agree with you. I don't know what adjective to attach to this court, but consistently conservative. Well, I guess that's an ad- adverb plus an adjective <laughs> would would certainly not be at you know, you know the first phrase to come trippingly off my list lips, particularly after the Obergefell decision, right? I mean, you can start you can start to pile up. A number of decisions that have uh, advanced a non-traditionalist understanding of morality uh, that this court has handed down during this period of so-called conservative ascendancy. So I, I you know, if you're talking about the social issues, I agree with you, and uh, and I would say that, I mean, there was a you know, famous. Turn of the twentieth century you know you know cartoonist storyteller Mr. Dooley <laughs> one of his famous one of his famous statements delivered in in an Irish brogue was that the the court follows the election returns. I wouldn't go that far, but I will say that the very rapid shift in attitudes on a number of social issues, has influenced the decisions of the court by creating a context within which certain decisions that would have been unthinkable even 20 years ago are not only thinkable, but with the grain of what the body politic would be willing to endorse.
0: The other big decision that came down, as uh, Linda and others have mentioned, um, today was the DACA decision. And uh, I think it's worth noting that there is a through line um, between this uh, decision that we've just been talking about, about the Civil Rights Act interpretation, because uh, and, and the DACA decision, because in both cases, certainly in the case of um, amending the Civil Rights Act, there have been any number of efforts over the years to amend the Civil Rights Act, to broaden it, to include uh, uh, gay rights and also um, uh, gender identity. And those have not been successful. So the Congress has not acted. legislative body hasn't acted. And the court has stepped in and done what some people regard as legislative work. And here in the case of DACA, um, there's you know there had been uh, unsuccessful efforts to reform the immigration system. Um, and the Congress was unable to do so. And so it wound up in the courts. On first reading, Adam, I have to say, and and you're an expert on the um, Administrative Procedure Act, um, the majority here, uh, the majority decision written by Justice Roberts, says that the administration cannot uh, reverse DACA because it's not fulfilling the Administrative Procedure Act requirements. But the question that the dissent asks, and I will pose that one to you, is why is it necessary for this administration to perfectly adhere to the Administrative Procedure Act when the Obama administration, which passed which which implemented DACA, didn't follow the administration administrative procedure act at all?
1: No, it's a great question. I mean, the background of this, I'm sure all, all of your listeners know, is that the Obama administration promulgated the DAPA and DACA policies unilaterally without going through any kind of notice and comment procedure. They just announced the policies and moved forward with them. There were lawsuits over those policies too, and as the majority opinion points out, Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion points out, uh, the lower courts enjoined those policies, blocked them. The Supreme Court, when it only had eight members, heard the case and was deadlocked four to four. That's interesting, by the way. That means that Chief Justice Roberts was probably with the, um, alito thomas and gorsuch at the time and now Ah. he's switching over here so he so it gets frozen the new administration comes in there's a change in administrations they announce that they're going to pull down these policies and yes as you point out the upshot of today's decision is that the department of homeland security gets blamed for not going through this notice and comment process um i'll say i've having read the opinion the first time through um Listen, I wasn't a fan of DAPA and DACA, at least procedurally. I think there's something to the substance. Procedurally, I thought it was wrong for the Obama administration to sidestep notice and comment. I think that it, that kind of approach to governance is sort of ad hocracy as, as the administrative state just kind of makes up the rules and changes them without real process. Um, but that wasn't before us in this case. And the rule that Chief Justice Roberts and the majority laid down here, I think, is reasonable. It's that when a policy a new policy uh, replaces an old one that should have gone through notice and comment. Then the new one has to go through that as well. There were real, as the court says, there were real gaps in DHS's analysis. They didn't talk, they, they, they didn't focus on the problems raised by, uh, or the question of whether to retain the forbearance of of enforcement of immigration, they didn't explain why that was a good decision to to stop forbearing enforcement of immigration, and they didn't grapple with the reliance interests that the old policy had engendered, even while the old policy said it wasn't engendering any reliance interests. Robert says in his majority, well, that's just not true. Um, We don't have to take the last administration sales pitch at face value. We know it did engender real uh, reliance interests, and the administration now needs to grapple with that. In the current case, this raises real problems. As as Justice Thomas and others point out, this creates a real first mover advantage for an administration that can implement a policy illegally um, that then might have to be unwound by the next administration through a more rigorous policy. That's true, but at the same time, I welcome this decision because Chief Justice Roberts and the majority are announcing a rule going forward that says, Things like this needed to go through notice and comment. It implicitly um, cr- criticizes the last administration for not doing it. These are the new rules of the road. This this opinion is a real step up in judicial scrutiny of agency action. We've seen a few cases like that recently. A year ago, there was the census case, again, written by Chief Justice Roberts uh, with the, the, the liberal wing of the court. Um, really scrutinizing the Commerce Department's failure to be candid and why it was adding the citizenship question to, to that. There's a number of cases, even in the, the King v. Burwell case, the case where Roberts again joined the liberals, wrote an opinion upholding the insurance subsidies for uh, health insurance bought on the federal Obamacare exchanges. First thing Roberts says is this kind of case is the kind of case where we can't defer to an agency's interpretation. He blew the biggest hole through what we call Chevron deference that the court has seen in 20 years. So over and over again, Roberts is building this much more rigorous administrative law that I welcome. I don't necessarily like it in the particular cases when it's, where it's decided, but I actually think that it's a good development. And, and I'll stop filibustering now.
0: No, I, I'm ve- I think that's a really, really interesting perspective. Um, Bill, you you may disagree with this but I I long had well certainly and you probably have reason <laughs> because what I was about to say is that that I used to think that one of the differences between liberals and conservatives certainly when it came to judicial philosophy and so forth was that liberals were very outcome focused that they didn't so much care how you got to a particular outcome they were just they just wanted their their victory, and uh, they weren't too picky about how you did it. And conservatives were a little bit more concerned about the way it was done, because after all, the way it's done is sort of the the foundation of our liberties. And um, but and, and so I, I'm I'm very grateful to Adam for that perspective, because it does suggest that Roberts is thinking along the same lines that the how is is critical here, um, more critical arguably than the what. On the other hand, um, there are certainly plenty of conservative voices nowadays um, who are also outcome focused, right?
4: I couldn't agree more. Uh, and results-oriented jurisprudence, you know, is now a tent big enough to encompass <laughs> significant portions of the ideological diversity of the American people. Uh, I wonder whether I could uh, I could pose a different. A, a different question. Uh, and that is, you know, I, you know, I sat down and speed read the 74 pages of the decision, the concurrences, the major dissent, et cetera. And I thought that there were two pillars of Thomas's argument. The first one is the one. you wrote we've the already dissent, read. the big dissent. Uh, Thomas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just clarifying. He wrote the, big. I'm dissent. sorry, Clarence yeah. Thomas. Right. And I thought that there were two pillars to his argument. One is you know, one is the Administrative Procedure Act argument uh, that that we've been that we've been batting around. But the other was a threshold question. Uh, his argument was, as I understand it, that uh, that the law, the underlying law, did not permit the administration to do what it did. What the administration did was not within even arguably the four corners of the law and therefore even if it had gone through the APA procedure, that wouldn't have been enough to vitiate the patent illegality of what the administration was doing. And Thomas, I think plausibly argued that that, that its illegality, uh, if that is the right way of characterizing it, was dispositive at the threshold. A and B, uh, what the you know, you know what the DHS in its original action and statement uh, specified as the reason. So what am I not getting here?
1: No, Bill, that's that's right. That definitely is how Thomas frames the opinion. In fact, he starts part two of his opinion by quoting. Uh, Roberts himself in a dissent in maybe Roberts' most full-throatedly anti-administrative state opinion ever, a case called uh, Arlington versus FCC. The line is, an agency literally has no power to act unless and until Congress confers power upon it. And so you're right. If, if the original policy had, no, if the original DACA and DAPA policies had no legal authorization, then it should be very easy for the agency to re- to withdraw that policy. But Roberts's point, and also Thomas points out, Roberts really gives short shrift in the opinion to that underlying question of legality, which is correct. But I think that's because Roberts's point here is that while there are two issues, the substantive statutory authorization and the Administrative Procedure Act stuff, the APA stuff is how agencies are supposed to arrive upon that substantive decision, right? Even now, even when the agency is unwinding things the previous iteration of the agency had done very swiftly and unilaterally, even now, Roberts is saying the agency has to go through the right process to reach that statutory that that, that substantive result at the end. By the way, I agree with 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 Thomas on the merits. I, I think DAPA and DACA were were unlawful, and I wrote about it at the time. But there is something to be said for Roberts that you know agencies are in the business of administering, and they have to connect their dots, as he says. They have to have square corners. They have the, the agencies have to walk square corners when they're working with the public. I've been thinking about this a lot lately in cases like this and a few others. I keep thinking that Roberts with Kagan and others are sort of naturally gravitating towards what the framers might have, what they they did call steady administration. Hamilton and things like Federal 70 and other papers was very, very worried about wild shifts in administrative policy from one administration to the next. Things like the APA, they do a lot of things, but they also help mute and moderate that process. And it seems to me that in opinions like this and in the Commerce case and in a few others, Roberts seems to be pulling administrative law in a direction that's intended to smooth out some of the wild fluctuations. It's not that the next administration can't reverse the policy. Roberts and the majority are very clear about that. But they do have to go through some semblance of process before doing it. And and the process that they require here, I'll be honest by my reading, is more aggressive than some old Supreme Court opinions have said the APA requires. But I think here Roberts is is doing this here and in other cases really to, rec- to demand more of agencies before they intervene in our lives, not just in repealing policies like DAPA and DACA, but in imposing them in the first place.
3: Could I, could I just interject here, because I really have a fundamental disagreement uh, with uh, some of what Adam said and some of what Clarence Thomas uh, said in his uh, opinion, and that is uh, that the whole DACA policy is illegal. I think there are really two parts to the DACA policy and the DAPA policy as well. One was an administrative decision not to pursue uh, deportation for certain classes of people illegally present in the United States. And it is absolutely, I think, uh, incontrovertibly true that the administration exercises every administration exercises discretion uh, all the time on who to deport, whom to deport, and whom not to deport. Um, and so if, if the uh, Obama administration had simply left it that they were going to uh, defer action against uh, immigrants who had come here as children uh, and not pursue deportation for them, they would have been perfectly uh, in their right to do so. Where they got into trouble is that they then also said, we are going to provide a work permit. Uh, We're going to allow... Uh, Those individuals who were not uh, going to deport to uh, to be able to work legally in the United States. And the problem with that was there is a law called the Immigration Reform and Control Act, uh, signed in 1986, which explicitly uh, only allows employers to hire people who have certain kinds of documentation uh, that includes the right uh, to work legally: uh, a valid social security card, uh, a green card if you're an immigrant. and certain other kinds of identification, and I think um, so. The idea that there is, you know, that the uh, Obama administration's DACA policy was just wrong uh, all around, I think, is is is, uh, is overstated. And uh, and I also think that you know this whole discussion is sort of getting down into the wonky weeds of the Administrative Procedure Act, rather than talking about who these people are that are being affected by this. And this was very much a part of Roberts and the others who, who signed on to the majority opinion was that this policy, um, has been relied upon by almost 700,000 young people who have, um, made their lives in the United States, some of whom have gone on to work, you know, some of the doctors that we're relying on in response to COVID, for example, are DACA recipients. And that simply pulling the rug out from under them and and taking away their right to be able to work is going to have profound consequences and that these can't be ignored and that the administration did in fact ignore that. So, so I, you know, I just want to make sure that we understand that, that, um, there are parts of DACA that I think that uh, the Obama administration absolutely had the authority uh, to um, uh, to put into place, and that was to defer the deportation of certain classes of, of immigrants. There are 11 million people who are illegally present in the United States, and we do not have the resources or the capability, nor should we want to make sure that all of those people are deported.
0: We have a few minutes left, and I'd like to devote some of them to how the 2020 race is shaping up. I'm going to go to you, Damon. Um, I've heard somebody uh, describe the state of the race this way that it will all be decided by the Rust Belt, the Sun Belt, and Florida. <laughs>
2: okay that's a lot of states um it is i mean uh, clearly the the story on the election in the last week or so is is biden just opening up an enormous lead uh i believe his average lead now nationally is in the uh, nine to ten point range um you know, it, it is obviously. But all
0: that counts are the swing states.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, it is closer, but he's he's ahead uh, in the big three, uh, you know, decisive swing states from four years ago: Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. He's ahead in all of those by at least a few points. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of great polling in Pennsylvania for a while. I think he's only up three or four in the polls that we have, but those are out of date. I would expect that he's ahead further now. Um, so at the moment, uh, it, it looks to be Biden's race to lose, but of course we have several months to go. A lot can and will happen. And you've started to see a very strange phenomenon in the last about 24 to 48 hours of the, if you put together the, the Bostock Supreme Court decision, which angered uh, some on the right early in the week. And now the DACA ruling today and also the, um, uh, the Bolton, uh, um, the, you know, the Bolton book and the firestorm around it and Trump tweeting angrily about Bolton this morning. You also have seen some tweets by the president looking as if he's almost making the argument that he's running against his own first term. (laughs) It's (laughs) kind of strangely apt uh, if you think about him as a populist, because populism is kind of useless as a reelection uh, approach because it always is kind of oppositional and directs its ire at the establishment uh, but of course Trump has been the establishment for the last uh, the last three and a half years but he's tweeting as if the betrayal of Bolton and his staffers for convincing him to hire him in the first place and then <laughs> and then Gorsuch on the court in the first of the Supreme Court decisions and then you know the Bush uh, appointee, uh, the The Chief Justice Roberts betraying him in that decision. It's as if he's he's saying, "Look, the whole system is still corrupt. Elect me, and I'll clean it up and drain the swamp. Would he actually try something so crazy i I would not rule it out. I doubt it will work, but that that could end up well being a kind of cockamamie trumpian." uh line if he can even remember to do it for more than 48 hours he'll probably get distracted but we also have his big tulsa rally coming up which uh is something that might be worth talking about as well
0: yeah like um bill do you want to chime in on this tulsa rally is this an effort by trump to actually kill off his own supporters
4: (laughs) i was i was gonna say you know if i were really churlish i would be cheering him on uh although I don't think of Oklahoma as a swing state, although if he holds enough rallies there, it could become one. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, uh, I just think it, well, let me, let me try to put this in a broader frame. Okay. Uh, of all of the controversies that Trump has endured this year, The one that has played worst with the American people is his handling of the the George Floyd killing and its aftermath. Uh, A number of surveys that I've seen uh, give give him a public approval of his overall policy and stance of about 35 percent, which means that a bunch of people who are probably going to vote for him in the election don't agree with the way he's been conducting himself. So right out of the box, what does he do? He goes to Tulsa, or he decides and announces to, that he's going to Tulsa, uh, the location of one of the very worst race riots in American history. Uh, and his, he initially schedules the speech Uh, for Juneteenth, which is sort of a national African American holiday, which perhaps will become a national holiday at some point, uh, to celebrate uh, the passage of the constitutional amendment that outlawed slavery. Uh, And if you're trying to demonstrate to your critics that you have learned absolutely nothing from the past two or three weeks, I can't think of a better way of doing it. Uh, and uh, I am, I'm just incredulous. Uh, a number of people in, uh, on this program have, have served in white houses. And I think it's inconceivable that something like this would have happened on any of, on any of the white house watches that we've served
3: on. Uh, I, 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 I just have to interject here, uh, Mona. You know, uh, Donald Trump is now taking credit for making Juneteenth uh, a big deal. Yes. He <laughs> uh, and, and he had to be reminded in his interview with the Wall Street Journal, a transcript of which is uh, in the journal today uh, or online, Is uh, he had to be reminded that he's actually signed a proclamation every year that he's been in office commemorating Juneteenth. Which I should probably correct, Bill. It wasn't a commemoration of the passage of the of the Fifteenth uh, Amendment. It was uh, when the people in Texas, uh, sl- uh, former slaves in Texas, first learned that they had been emancipated two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed uh, by Abraham apology. Lincoln. My yeah. apologies, by Abraham Lincoln. So it isn't as well known, I guess, as his, as Donald Trump seems to think it is, even with his help.
0: Well, um, you know, it's as, as well known as that Finland is a part of Russia. Um, but, um, you know, the, one of the things that uh, Sarah Longwell, the uh, publisher of The Bulwark, pointed out in a, I thought it was a very interesting observation of, from a focus group that she did with um, women voters who had voted for Trump in 2016, but were now disinclined toward him. And uh, she, she found that after talking with them, that it was very interesting that they did not particularly blame Trump for his handling of the coronavirus. They felt like that was something that was exogenous and everybody had trouble with it. Many countries didn't handle it well, um, nor the economy, uh, because again, they felt that was something out of his hands, but that they did have a sense of how a good president should handle a racially charged situation like the the George Floyd um murder and and that they were deeply deeply angry and disappointed in him uh for his his terrible leadership there uh so so i found found that interesting um i i'm wondering adam um whether you think uh, do do you have views on this the, the the question of the vice presidential choice and whether it needs to be under the circumstances an African American woman? He's already committed to choosing a woman, uh, and if so, do you have a candidate?
1: <laughs> well, I, I've thought for a little while that the, the, the natural candidate would be Congresswoman uh, Val Demings, based hmm. on uh, the fact that you know Biden had committed to to nominating a woman, that she has a law enforcement background, she's from Florida and so on, she, she's not culturally, a, you know, a, a radical left winger, I thought she'd be a, a natural choice. And as it happens this week, Jonathan Last has the the long piece from a Bulwark reader explaining in, in much, much better detail and more convincing than I ever could, that Demings seems to be far and away the best pick for Biden at this moment for all for a great number of reasons. Um, it made, like I said, I've kind of been keeping an eye on, on her since Democrats entrusted her to play such an important role in the impeachment proceedings. And uh, since then, everything seems to be pointing towards her, especially now the fact that the Republican convention could move down to Florida. I mean, how amazing would that be for Democrats to nominate her uh, in, in the middle of the Republicans' own convention in the state where they're doing it? I've I've thought for a while – listen, I'm a lawyer. I don't know anything about politics. But I've thought for a while that Trump would try to relitigate the 2016 campaign. But this time, instead of campaigning against Obama, he'd be campaigning against um, state governors. And I wrote a piece about that for The Bulwark called Trump versus the Governors saying that the federal stimulus bill was opening up a a year-long argument between Trump and governors over how they were conducting business in their states. And it's true that Trump is taking real, real beatings right now based on his utter mishandling of, well, of everything, but especially of the <laughs> George Floyd. Um, I think his best bet might be to hope that Democrats overreact on things like defund the police and so on. That might be his only hope. But I really, it's hard for me to imagine him uh, winning um, after everything he's mishandled. And I think that nominating Val Demings could really make a difficult job of re-election virtually impossible.
0: Yeah, um, one thing I, I think it's worth noting because uh, there's been a lot of talk about how far left the Democratic Party is moving, and you see this on a lot of conservative websites. You know, Trump may not be good, but the Democrats are crazy, and they point to the autonomous zone in Seattle and and Ilhan Omar and uh, so on and so forth. But the fact is, or the defund the police movement, uh, which was indeed a threat, uh, a little bit uh, of of Giving the Democratic Party a little bit of a um, radical reputation, but I think I've say Biden's been quite shrewd about it. Um, jumped out ahead of that right away. Said he wasn't for defunding the police. Um and uh I, I agree with you in recommending that JVL piece about uh, Val Demings. Uh, he's quoting from a, a bulwark reader who um <laughs> is a, apparently some sort of professional gambler and and bets on, on politics, but boy is it shrewd about uh about many things. And and I did not know all the things that he relates about Val Demings and uh that she she's you know the first in her family to attend college and she was a cop and she uh, is, is a religious person and she's, she's very impressive, uh, and, and, and checks a lot of boxes I have to say. So very, very interesting piece. I commend it to people. Um, all right. We have now come to the part of our program where we give recommendations or things that caught our eye. So, uh, Bill Galson what about you?
4: Well, this, this follows hard on the heels of our conversation about Val Demings. Uh, to me, the single most surprising survey finding, uh, you know, at least concerning, concerning the general election, is the consistent lead that Joe Biden has enjoyed in Florida. Florida, the state that's broken Democrats' hearts so many times. I mean, right now, as we speak, uh, he has uh, a lead that averages four and a half points in Florida. By Florida standards, that's a that's a landslide. Uh, if that holds up, it will moot a lot of the other states that we've been talking about. If he got Florida's electoral votes, he could lose one or even two of the blue wall states uh, that Trump's in the upper Midwest Midwest and still win the election. Uh, I was of the view just up to a few months ago, uh, that if the Democrats had to choose between a Northern tier strategy, uh, and a Southern tier strategy, that the Northern tier strategy was the best bet. I'm not sure that's, I'm less confident in that judgment than I was three months ago. If you look at what's happening in Florida, uh, in Georgia, in Arizona, uh, if yeah you know, I don't ex- I don't expect Biden to win Texas, but I think he's gonna make the Trump force the Trump campaign to spend some money to defend the state, which they shouldn't have to do. Uh, I'm beginning to wonder whether the entire frame of the election is shifting in ways that I certainly didn't anticipate.
0: Well, um, bill, maybe um, Maybe the Democrats had their hearts broken in the past in Florida because they didn't think to nominate a geezer.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now we just have to keep them all alive until November. (laughs) (laughs) keep them out of the nursing
3: homes.
4: (laughs) Linda, what about you?
3: Well, first of all, let me, let me apologize to Bill for poking you on uh, the uh, Juneteenth. It turns out that I gave the wrong amendment on the amendment that ended slavery, which was the 13th, not the 15th. So bad on me. Uh, But I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to, uh, to, uh, uh, give a little good news here. There was another article in the Wall Street Journal that I think was uh, worth looking at today. And it says early data show no uptick in COVID-19 transmission from protests. Um, And what it uh, reveals is that uh, many of the people who've been protesting have been tested and they've come back with a positive uh, test rate uh, in Minnesota of less than 2% uh, among the 3,200 protesters who've been tested. And um, they are having uh, basically lower rates than a lot of people thought, which is good news for lots of reasons, not least of which we don't want people to get COVID. Uh, But it also may suggest that being outside and doing things outside in groups is a whole heck of a lot less dangerous uh, than doing doing things inside. And that's good news for all of us.
1: Yes. Adam. Well, all this court talk this week has distracted me from um, my work on a book review of a book. It just came out, and it's really wonderful. It's by Matthew B. Crawford. He authored um, Shop Class: A Soul Craft a few years ago. His latest book is called Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. And like the last book or the, or the first book, it's both an ode to just the the joys of working with your hands, but it also teaches us a lot about who we are. Um, as, as a people, as human beings. And the best part about this book is it reminded me of one of my all-time favorite political essays from a long, long time ago, James Q. Wilson's essay for commentary in the 1960s called A Guide to Reagan Country, The Political Culture of Southern California, which has a lot of driving in it too. So I highly recommend the book. I also highly recommend people look up uh, James Q. Wilson's old essay.
0: Uh, to be clear, you weren't even born then, but... Uh...
1: <laughs> <laughs> i heard about it, though. Yeah, you're right about
4: it. Is driving in L.A. really part of what we are as Americans?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, sadly, that might be it. But in the 1960s, it was a little better.
2: (laughs) Okay, Damon. Uh, I'm delighted that Adam uh, flagged Matthew Crawford's book. I haven't read it yet. I have it waiting and we'll dig in soon. His last book, The World Beyond Your Head, was absolutely fabulous. Um, Mm. So Crawford is definitely someone who should be on people's radar, one of the most thoughtful uh, writers around right now. Um, My own plug, though... um, is just about a story that I think uh, listeners should be aware of. It's what's going on at the Voice of America right now, uh, which is, I think, pretty distressing. Uh, the Voice of America has been around since 1942, run by the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which also has other arms uh, in its Media network around the world. It it tries to disseminate uh, fair and literally fair and balanced, as opposed to ironic fair and balanced in a Fox News way. Um, News throughout the world, uh, often uh, into authoritarian regimes where there aren't independent news outlets available. Uh, I won't get into the details, but suffice it to say that uh, a Steve Bannon associate. Uh, has been finally, after two years languishing in the Senate, been uh, approved to take over the U.S. Agency for Global Media. And on Wednesday night, there was a kind of Wednesday night massacre in which the head of all of these different news outlets were canned and they're going to be Breitbart style people sweeping in and control of all of them. And uh, that's, uh, at the very least, I would say that's even perhaps uh, the, the, the better outcome. I mean, my, my view of Bannon uh, has, has gotten pitch black over the last couple of years, as I've done more reading into what he's been doing the last two years, including making ties with Alexander Dugan, who is a Russian fascist, uh, and I don't throw that term around lightly, as some in the anti-Trump resistance do. Uh, and Bannon, uh, Bannon's just a bad, bad guy. And all the people who are being put in at this agency uh, are associates and allies of his. It's bad stuff. So uh, my recommendation would be to read an essay in uh, CNN titled Wednesday Night Massacre as Trump appointee takes over at global media agency.
0: So I have to ask you, Damon, um, because the person who just took over there, it, Michael Pack, is a friend of mine. We've been friends for many years. And um, <clears throat> I, I know that two people did resign uh, from VOA uh, after his arrival. Perhaps he asked for their resignations, I'm not sure. But I have not seen yet that he has appointed any Breitbart style people. That part I haven't seen.
2: Uh, Well, Jeffrey Shapiro, who is a close ally of Bannon is going to be named uh, to lead the office of Cuba broadcasting. That was part of the CNN story. Uh, And there's some others who, who I'm not as familiar with, but uh, he, I am.
0: Well, for mine, um, I wanted to mention that, uh, after they were able to count all the votes in Georgia, which was no easy thing considering that it was a shambles um, because of COVID and other things. Um, the uh, one of the, uh, a safe GOP seat was uh, <clears throat> there's going to be a runoff, but one of the people who is going to be in that runoff is a woman named Marjorie Taylor green, who it turns out is in addition to being a QAnon, believer, or so she claims, also videos have surfaced showing that she's an anti-Semite, anti-Muslim, and racist, and various other things. And so finally, the leadership in the Republican Party has bestirred itself to condemn her and endorse her opponent. But I would just say this is not the first QAnon adherent to succeed in Republican primaries. There's one in the state of Oregon, who has gotten the Republican nomination for a Senate seat in Oregon. Let us hope <clears throat> that in 2020, this will be the year that the Republican Party cleans house and uh, rids itself of these noxious elements. Thank you, one and all, for another great broadcast um people can reach me at mcharon1 at gmail.com if you would like to make a comment or a suggestion we ask you to rate and review us and uh, we thank you all for listening and thank you to adam white for his expertise and for joining us
1: that was a pleasure
0: till next week